Welcome to the Invincible Innovation Show, the podcast for changemakers. Each week, I talk to the most fascinating entrepreneurs and innovation leaders about innovation, strategy, and design. Hey, everyone. Tell, let's talk about business, leadership, and innovation. A very inspiring talk today. Welcome to Invincible Innovation Live Show. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm Adima Zolkario, Product Innovation and Value Creation Expert, and I'll be your host. And I have a very, very special guest, Bill. Hi, Bill. Hi, Adi. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy that you're here. That's Bill right. Flynn is the CEO and Chief Catalyst of Catalyst Growth Advisors. I'm so happy that you're, you're joining me. And we're live on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook, and you're so invited to join the discussion and ask questions. And I hope it's going to be like lots of fun. So let's start with a very hard question. It's one of the questions that, that I think it's, it's starting with the hardest one. Hmm. But why do few companies survive and, and fewer flourish? And most of them are failing. Yeah, it's really kind of um, really sad uh, because uh, that's not how we start, right? We, we expect everything to go well. And, and at least in the U.S., <clears throat> the stats aren't great. Um, about 50% of businesses that are started in the U.S. Um, fail in about five years. Wow. Um, and it actually gets worse uh, down to, I think it's uh, in over 25 or so years, about 16% are left. 25 and, and it's going down all the time, yeah. right? It goes down pretty quickly and then it sort of, you know, slows, the, the curve slows a little bit, but it's still a curve that, that drops. Now, some of those are for reasons, you know, for selling or for going, you know, for ending the business for good reasons. Uh, but uh, it's, that's not, I don't think that's the prevalent um, reason. Um, and you'd think as you were in business longer, you'd get smarter and wiser and you, you hope. You, yeah. And you do better. So you'd think that, you know, yeah, maybe, you know, those folks who weren't paying attention, they drop quickly, but then the line would drop off or actually, you know, would potentially level off, but that doesn't seem to be what's happening. And there's two sets of data. There's data from the small business administration in the United States and, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics that sort of corroborate this. So, um, what I did is I sort of looked at um, failure and success. Um, I'm a big believer that you should learn from failure, but all you learn from failure is how not to fail. And that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean how to succeed. So you also have to study success. Um, but if you just study success without failure, then maybe you're not um, learning as quickly as you can because um, you're only seeing the ones that made it uh, and understanding uh, those that didn't make it also helps. Um, so what I've, what I've come to, to realize is that uh, most, there are lots of really good reasons that people go out of business. There, I, I, about five, or, five years ago or so, I just Googled, you know, what are some of the reasons that businesses go out of business? And I just started writing them down. Uh, and I went after a web page and web page and kept looking until, I, I think it was about 30 or 35, I stopped. I said, well, that's, that's plenty. Uh, yeah, enough reasons. Yeah, there are so many. So there's lots of ways to go out of business. Um, and now this is just sort of my own research and my own experience, um, but it seems to bear out relatively well when tested against really good leaders and really good companies, is that um, uh, the reasons that businesses fail, I believe, isn't one big thing uh, to me. It's we do a bunch of important things wrong 
We just don't do them completely wrong, but they add up, right? As you, as you don't hire really well and you don't have quite the right person in the right job, um, you don't really have your values and stick to them. You're not constantly working on your strategy. You don't give feedback well. I mean, there are all these things and as they add up. And I think that that creates a weight right? That, that the leader has to pull and it gets heavier and heavier. And so most businesses struggle or fail. Now, uh, what I mentioned before was that many businesses fail, but there are so many more that didn't fail, but are struggling. Seem to do three things really well. One is that they understand that the team is the entity that gets most of the stuff done. Uh, and they're really good at understanding <clears throat> how to attract the right team, how to build the right team, because it's really a team is, is built up of a well-rounded team is built up of idiosyncratic people. And your job as a leader is to how to fit those pieces together, um, then how to grow that team. And then obviously, you know, uh, um, run that team yourself. Uh, there's data out there that says about 80% of us are on a team, at least one, if you're in a company. And about 60 or 70% of those people are more than one team. Um, and many of those teams, if the larger the company, are just these, um, these uh, ephemeral teams. They sort, of, they sort of come up, they solve a problem, and then they go away. Um, so teaching how to really do all those things is super important. And I do that with my clients all the time, is, um, is teach them how to do those, you know, really understand how team, team is there. The other is uh, a system. Uh, a business is basically one big system. It's made up of a bunch of subsystems and then it has a bunch of components for each of those subsystems. And understanding that um, uh, I think will allow you to grow your business in a more systematic way, coincidentally. Uh, and then lastly, if you really wanna grow your business and you wanna be healthy, you should use cash as your primary financial metric, not revenue, not even profit. Profit leads to cash, but it doesn't always. Sometimes we, we fool ourselves and think we have more profit than we do. Uh, and the way to test that is if someone comes to buy your company uh, and you're, if you're underpaying yourself and you're, and you're saying that underpayment goes to profit, they're not buying that. They're going to take that out of the EBITDA, right? Because they're saying, yeah. no, I, I want to pay people what they're worth. Just because you weren't paying yourself doesn't mean that you're profitable. So that can certainly affect you as well. So those are the three things. Yeah. Team, build, uh, understand that your business is a system and subsystems and, and, and run it that way and work on each one individually because they all sort of like a crossword puzzle. They fit together and each um, supports the other. Yeah. And then cash is your primary primary financial growth metric. So that's So my, I want to ask you about the second one, about the system. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that when the systems are working really, really well, sometimes it's very hard for them to learn new things, to incorporate new un understanding and ideas, and sometimes even unlearn some things they need to go through the years. So it seems that if you want to evolve, you need to be very flexible with that system. And what we call innovation is really growing that system to be mature and to fit what's going on with the, with the market, with your customers, with whatever outside yeah. and not catching up all the time. Agreed. Yeah. Complacency is a factor, right? We love the status quo. I'm a bit of a neuroscience geek and there's something called status quo bias. We don't move forward because whatever we're in is, is more comfortable than the unknown and the uncertainty of, of the future. But that's really your job. Um, so what I basically teach my, my leaders is your job is to fire yourself from the day to day as soon as you can. And depending on the size of your business, you can't necessarily fire yourself from the entirety of the day. Um, but 
you should constantly be thinking about that because as you grow, you want to be replacing those bits of what you do with better people who are better at it than you are, especially, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, we do lots of different things and we certainly don't like all of them. And we certainly aren't as good at some as we are at others. So those things that you love that really give you joy and, and energy are things that you should be doing more often. Um, so if you are a leader and you really want to grow your business and hopefully that brings you joy, right? Really thinking about the future and how to predict and how to make the lives of the two main constituencies in your business better, the people that work with you in your, in your, in your overall team, and then the, the people that you serve, right? Your customers. Um, so uh, I talk about that. You have to really think about firing yourself from day to day because your job is to predict the future. And if you're predicting the future, then this complacency is taken care of generally because you're constantly looking forward and you're seeing what differences, what, what's working well now, but what's coming down the road. Um, so building resilience into your team is part of that. And we've had three existential economic crises in this century, in the century so far with 9-11 and then 2008, and then of course COVID. And those that had cash in the bank, as I mentioned earlier, uh, were able to at least potentially survive. This COVID is really odd. Um, but, um, those that built resilient teams, that's part of the system, right? Is your job is to, is to push the decisions down to where they should be made. Your, your job is to create autonomy. Your job is your job is to create an environment so people can run the business. And I like to say, if you left for three months, uh, no one outside the business would know that you left. It just would run itself. So I think that's really important. It's not a will to 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 challenge things. It's a um, it's a habit. If you're constantly looking toward the future, you will stave off complacency. Yeah. So how do you see, like right now, the COVID crisis um, challenging these leaders and what, what have they done well and what have they done not so well and what should they learn in order to do it better? Yeah. So, you know, COVID is just an odd beast. Um, obviously, it affected pretty much everyone in the world, uh, almost all at the same time. Uh, and it shown, it has shined a light on things that were always there, but um, weren't, weren't given proper attention, like um, people engaged at work and people enjoying what they do and really being excited to go to work. We're seeing this great resignation or whatever you want to call this thing um, as part of it, because people have, are waking up and saying, wow, I used to work um, to live. Uh, I used to live to work. Now I work to live, right? So you want, you, we used to, it's, uh, I like the saying that's, I can't remember who said it, it was, we used to fit uh, into the cracks of work, our lives. Now we're fitting into the cracks of uh, our lives, our work, right? You know, we're finding that, you know, if you work at home, you can go do the soccer game at three o'clock and then go back and finish the day. And, but if you're in the office, you couldn't do that. And so we're seeing all these, these things, those leaders that aren't seeing that they aren't realizing that that's an issue. Like I got to get them back in the office. I got to do these things as opposed to, no, your job is to create a wonderful environment for people to help you realize your vision. It's not to oversee them and to make sure that they're doing things correctly. Cause you know, that's, that's not what we as human beings like. We like to um, be left to our own devices. Now we also like to make sure, you know, where are we going? We want some direction and some guidelines. Um, so that's your job. So those, I think those are people that did that, that really understood that my job is to, there's this, um, um, I don't know if you have this in Israel, but uh, you probably do. It's probably all, all over, but we have bowling alleys. And uh, when, when the kids go bowling, 
whether it's the candle pins, which are the small balls, which we use here in New England a lot, or the really big ones, they have these rails that go up. Um, <clears throat> and it keeps the ball in play, right? And I sort of use that as my metaphors. Your job is to create the rails, right? And so you can do anything you want in here, but but you can't do anything outside of here. If you if you think strongly that we should, then bring it to us and we wanna we wanna look at it because maybe we built the rails too tightly. Um but that's your job. And so that's about creating standards. Um, and I think you're going to ask me a question later about a leader that I really like. And so I'll bring him up now and we'll talk more in detail. Um, Alan Mulally is one of my favorite leaders. He's, he's my favorite leader, not one of my favorite leaders. I think he is the best leader, at least we in the U.S. have had in a hundred years or so. Why? He has this great saying, which is, he, he said, um, he says, you got to love them up. He's talking about his people. You got to love the people up, but hold them to the standard. So your job is to, un is to create the standards. What are the standards? How do we do things here? What are the behaviors that are correct behaviors? Who are we? What is our identity? Um, why are we doing this? Why did we set this up to do? And what are we trying to accomplish when we're done? If you, if you create, those are the guardrails, right? If you create those for people, you'd be amazed at how much they will help you to do that if they believe what you believe, right? That's sort of hiring. So that's what I yeah. think we do well and, and, and don't do well. Yeah, we, we mentioned that people are not really, uh, if, if you tell them to come back to work, they would say, okay, you trusted us till now. Now you don't trust us. Of like two years, we've been like doing what we should do and you got the results that you wanted. And now you're saying, you know what? No, I don't trust you anymore. And I think when we're talking about like the relationship between your uh, employees and what you're doing, it's, it's so um, tangible to see that you cannot play in the same cards that you play till now because the game has changed in that aspect, right? Exactly, yes. So I, I, think, I think a lot of good things and a lot of bad things have happened because of COVID, but I think from a work perspective, a lot of good things will eventually come out of it. I think people will, the leaders will realize that it's really incumbent upon us to create this environment so people can make the choice, right? There are lots of people who, who want to come to work. They want to be around other people, right? And there are certain times where you should have them. You should be in the same room with someone, right? Either either virtually, the same room is better, but if, if, you know, if you're international, you know, um, that's fine as well. But um, being around other people, hanging around them at, at the end of the day, going to get a drink with them or have dinner, these are all things that create more of a team aspect. You see each other as human beings um, when you're in those situations. So so I agree with you that, uh, that uh, um, you know, we're uh, those that don't realize that their hypocrisy is apparent to their team are, are doing it at their peril. Yeah. And in your book, you mentioned creating a culture of uh, psychological safety. Yes. So could you tell us more about that? I think it's connected to what you're talking right now because you exactly. need to trust and create safety that way. Exactly. Yeah. So this is a, a term coined by Amy Edmondson who is a Harvard Business um, School professor and author. And uh, she did research, I don't know, 20 years ago on, I think it was surgical teams. And her premise was that the teams that made the fewest mistakes were the most successful. Uh, and what she found out that uh, it, the opposite was true, is that the ones who um, made the fewest mistakes actually were the best ones. But what she found was it wasn't that anyone made any more mistakes, it was they admitted their mistakes. And when the teams that admitted their mistakes um, were able to correct them, 
right? There was safety. They felt it, you know, I screwed up or I don't know what I'm doing or can you double check that for me or whatever it might be, you know, um, letting letting others see that you are human, right? We are, we are flawed beings, humans, right? We are highly irrational, impulsive, emotional beings. Uh, and we have to understand that as leaders. And you, if you create that environment saying, you know, you don't know everything um, uh, and you're not expected to, we hired you because we think you're a great fit for our culture. We share the same values. We're trying to, to, to um, reach the same vision or the same destination. Um, we enjoy each other. And you have some skills that you brought to the table and knowledge. And hopefully I will help you grow those as you go. Um, if, you, if you hire that way and treat your people that way, then they will be feel, they'll feel more safe. I, I, had a, um, I had a great boss. I really liked him a lot. But there was one thing I didn't like. It never really, I didn't understand it at the time, but it didn't really feel right to me. And then after I studied it further, you know, with, with Amy's work, et cetera, he used to say, don't come to me with a problem without a solution. And I'm like, well, that, you know, for some reason I, I couldn't really put my finger on it. And now let him think about it. And I thought about it. It's like, well, well, that's not a really good idea because then the problems are hidden. Right. And if I don't have a solution, then I don't bring it to you. Then you won't know. Maybe you have a solution or maybe someone else on the team has a solution. Um, so that's, that's sort of the opposite of psychological safety, right? Is that yeah. you know, you, you'll feel like you're, you're not good enough if you don't come with a solution to the problem. Um, but understanding the problem, there's an adage, you know, understanding the problem fully is half the battle, right? Is making yeah. sure you, you really truly understand the problem. Yeah. Um, so, so that's it's even um, more the essence of sort of psychological safety. Yeah. I think it's related to vulnerability that I admit that oh. I'm not that smart and it's related to the, the organization ability to, to understand failures as part of what we're doing. We are not striving to fail, but this is what we're doing while we're doing stuff. And sometimes we do succeed and sometimes we fail and we, it could be very small failure. It doesn't have to be like a fiasco in the business. I'm, I'm doing something and I did not succeed in doing this task or other. And I need the safety and the, and the trust from the organization in order to see how do I do it better next time? How do we learn from it? How do we all know what's, what's wrong mm -hmm. and how to, to relate to it in any way? Agreed, yeah. Yeah, there's this adage that people have sort of glommed onto, which is called fail fast. I don't completely agree with that. It's, I think it should feel smart. Um, there are two types of decisions um, that I see, the two buckets that most decisions fit into, reversible and irreversible. If it's an irreversible decision, you shouldn't fail fast. You should take more time up front to you know, do a pre-mortem, you know, go through all the scenarios. You, could, you can, you can um, uh, create different teams that look at things different ways. And, and, and make sure that you've talked through and, and done some thought experiments on the situation. So you put yourself in the best position on an irreversible decision to have it be correct. It doesn't necessarily mean it will be, but your job is to, is to, is to hopefully make the outcome, the increase, the probability that the outcome will be a good outcome. Um, so process, I think, is much more important in decision than, than the outcome. But we as human beings don't do that. When people say, you know, no. when, if you asked 100 people and said, Tell me, you know, an example of a really good decision. They will base it upon the outcome. But that isn't, they might've just been lucky. Sure. Uh, you want to base it on the process that you put, you put everything through in order to make the decision, right? I'm a big fan of, of understanding what kind of decision you're making first. And according to some folks like the Canovan framework, um, there are four types of decisions, which are simple, complicated, complex, and cha chaotic. So once you understand which one that is, then you apply the right 
method to it. Uh, because a simple decision is more of a best practice, right? Or, or whatever you want to call it. You've already done it before, you've seen it, et cetera. You apply it, it generally works. Uh, complex is there's no there's no answer. You're trying to figure it out like pricing, I think, is a good example of a really uh, of a, a complex problem, right? You want to you want to charge as much as you can without gouging people. Um, and the market will, will will correct you on that most likely. And they want to pay as little as possible. So, but you're trying to guess what a mass of people will pay. So that's a complex problem. So that's sort of safe to fail experiments. You want to keep trying things, right? Try this price and do this thing, this package, et cetera, until you over time realize that you're you're maximizing the utility of, of the pricing and the value that you're providing to the to the person. Um, we don't do that. We generally treat everything as if it's best practice, right? And we apply yeah. the same model to it. And a lot of our decisions, you know, we don't track them. We don't have a journal and we don't know which worked, worked well. We don't learn from them. Yeah, um, we're, we're doing so many decisions over the day. I think that the fail fast is very relevant for startups or for small businesses who want to know what is the right direction. And they really don't know. In most businesses, they do know what's their clients and what they're doing and what is needed. But for a very, very unmature and in, in an unfamiliar terrain, they want to fail in order just to, to know what is their direction. And it's, it's the same thing within an innovation within a company or a startup, but it doesn't work in every, in, in every way. And, I, I, and what you said about making decisions, I think that most people are so prone to doing something. And yes. sometimes a decision could be, Currently, I'm not doing it. It's not that I'm not deciding. I'm deciding that currently I'm not doing it. And most people see it as like the opposite of what is expected from a leader. And, and we saw it right now in COVID, right? So yeah. the, most of them just trend to get some kind of a decision instead of just pausing, right? And sometimes it's a good decision, right? It's the opposite of Nike, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nike sounds better than just, just do thinking. It, yeah. yeah, we... Yeah. we um. We fail to understand the scope in terms of time, right? We think making a fast decision is good um, or, or changing something quickly is good. But if we don't have a good process, then it may take 10 times as long to actually have that thing be effective, if, if ever, right? According to some research, somewhere, somewhere around 70% of change initiatives fail. Uh, and it's because we want to change, we want to make the change. And then, but people don't like to be, have change foisted upon no. them. We have cognitive dissonance and all these other things, right? We, we'd like the status quo. And so we're always finding reasons to not change. Um, but if you involve them in the process up front, take a little more time, you know, sell them on the idea, tell them where it's there, help them to create the implementation plan of the, of the thing, they're much more likely to engage in it because now they're part of it, right? They believe in it and, and they feel they have some more agency. Um, yeah. But you brought up something really interesting, which I want to touch on with, with startups is, um, I think failing fast is, is fine with startups, but it's, what are you failing on? I think too many startups fail on the wrong things. They're like, we have to do something, we have to build something. And I think you should say, no, your job, the first job you're supposed to figure out is, am I solving a problem worth solving? And my guess is you'll fail on that first, right? Because you'll either pick the wrong constituency or the wrong problem or the wrong solution to the problem. There are lots of failures in there before you build anything. Now, if you're a software coder and, and you can you can afford to just make mistakes and because you're not really paying yourself, then that's fine. But if you're spending other people's money or, um, or using other people's time or you're actually physically having to spend money on something, I'm a big fan of, of doing a lot more work upfront um, and finding that really important thing, which is, am I solving the problem we're solving? 
and by the way, it also should be something that 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 gets your juices flowing. Um, uh, somehow, it either could be the problem, it could be the process of solving the problem, whatever it is, it's got to be something that you you enjoy most mornings to get up and go do. Because if you don't, eventually, it'll catch up with you. Yeah. Um, I, so I'm a big fan of, of of that as well. Fail fast, but fail in the right areas. And if you're a startup, fail on the on the on the 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 idea, right? Prove the idea out first and see if that fails versus actually assuming your idea is correct. And then, you know, two, three, four, five, six years later, you're out of business because guess what? You didn't do the work yeah. up front. So usually it's less than three years. If you didn't do it in startups in three years, it's like that's it. You don't have more than that. But but of course, when you're trying something new, you have more question marks here and, and you don't know sometimes. And and I think it makes sense to um, to try things out faster uh, when you don't know. Because sometimes on the other side, you have this analysis paralysis that you see in many like in enterprise and corporates, which are, we're making lots of money right now this way. Why should we change? Why we should consider new markets, new products, new services, whatever. And that's the, the opposite of failing fast is, is, is problematic too for them, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's, you know, we, we generally go at the problem. Again, this is something that we do sort of wrong is that we assume that whatever is happening now is going to keep going. And that's just not true, right? The, the world changes, technologies change, things happen. You know, Blockbuster and Xerox and are all of these um, one, you know, cautionary tales for folks is uh, if you don't really continue to predict the future, right? By going out to your market and understanding what's going on. And the market is your, your, your core customers you have today, but also the market itself. Right? How are you differentiating yourself among all of the different options for your core customer? Some of my clients, most of them don't have this, but some of them find that when they really go out and look at it in a holistic way, that, that their core customer today is not their core customer tomorrow. There's an opportunity of a problem that's not being fully solved somewhere else, and they have to morph or, or transition to a different kind of customer. Uh, but often what I found is we don't go deep enough in our existing set of customers is if we really pay attention to the job they hire us to do and are we fully solving that job, there are lots more things that we can do that they would value and pay us for that we don't do. We actually start to go wide, you know, and we get back to that failure of the beginning. Most businesses don't fail from starvation. They fail from indigestion. We do too many things. We don't do them well enough. Um, and then like something like this or even a smaller crisis hits us and it drains our resources and puts us in a more vulnerable position. You know, I've read, you know, people say, you know, um, businesses fail because they run out of cash. I'm like they don't fail because they run out of cash. They, they ran out of cash because they didn't do a bunch of other stuff. And that's a lagging indicator to failure, right? You want the yeah. leading indicators to failure. And that's not really paying attention to customer problems, solving problems we're solving, playing, you know, really, you know, hiring the right people, loving them up and holding them to the standards. Those are all things that will help you to get through the inevitable difficult times. There will always be, what do they call low frequency, high impact events? We have them. Um, so understanding, you don't have to stand when it's going to be or what it is, but understand that it will happen and prepare yourself as much as you can. Create resilient teams that can that can react quickly, have enough cash in the bank. Um, uh, diversify a little bit you know, amongst what you do. Again, keep it within, don't go too wide, stay within a narrow frame, but diversify across things. So 
Those are yeah. things that I think good leaders are always thinking about. And the reason they think about it is because they fired themselves from the day to day because they have time to think, right? And, yeah. and, and time to, 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 to contemplate and, and discuss and debate these things with their team. That's what they should be doing. Yeah. Sometimes it seems that a good leader doesn't need to be uh, too busy all the time. There, there, many of them are so, so busy and all their calendar is like till the middle of the night, Phil. And, and we hear it from, you know, I heard from uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates talking about how many like hours they are uh, sleeping at night, you know, four hours, two hours a night, whatever. And, and, and yeah. for me, it's, it, it doesn't make sense because... You need time just to to stop and think and even just time to breathe it, it sounds interesting and, and important for me so I think it's only like uh, what they want people to think about them this is how I see it what do you think or how they think about themselves yes so uh, most of our decisions and are, are basically made upon three three criteria I think ego ego time and money and it's almost always ego ego is And ego it's basically I think broken down into social and emotional right so social is how am I perceived by others and how do I perceive myself right what's the story I'm telling to myself about myself um, and we say you know most stress is caused by the stories we tell ourselves um, so uh, if you can tell yourself a different story and and, and learn from it then hopefully your stress levels uh, diminish um, but yeah I, I ask a question uh, I used to do a I used to be a speaker for an organization called Vistage. And I spoke to hundreds and hundreds of Vistage CEOs. And I would ask them the same question around this. You know, if your job is to predict the future, if we believe that, and, and that's about new ideas and innovation and, you know, creating a future that you don't have yet. Um, uh, so it's about ideas. And I asked them, when, describe for me a time when you had a really good idea. What were you doing? And invariably, the answer is I was in the shower. I was on a run. I was riding my bike. I was just bored. I was just hanging out. Yeah, that's, that's when your ideas come because when your mind is quiet. And if you're always doing, it's very hard to do and think at the same time. It'll happen once in a while, but it's much easier for, for your brain to connect to loosely, um, loosely connected ideas. You know, that's an insight. The flash of insight is really a physical change in your brain. And that's when that idea comes to you. Two things that, were, that you probably collected over the years or uh, over time. Just connected and like oh you know velcro you know yeah I, you know how do i extend my yeah. things and i was out out in the woods oh my goodness right and, and i yeah. came up with velcro uh so that's that's what they need to do that's why i say you need to fire yourself from the day to day and that's what yeah. i do i help them fire themselves from the day to day is over about a year and a half to two years they, they do less and less and less in running the business and more and more doing of creating the future of the business Yeah. You know, when, when we, when you said about like when they're doing or when they're like resting, I think it's like, instead of doing is just being, and when you're being, and most, most businesses don't talk about being, it sounds too spiritual, right? Like go and do mindfulness and breathe or something like that. But I think it's so important for people who lead other people to be aware that sometimes when you're doing that much and, and workaholic is just the, Uh, addiction that everybody loves right everybody appreciates a, a workaholic yeah. so it's not always good not for you not for your like surrounding your family and not to your uh, worker uh, people who work with you or employees and um, yeah so so if if working gives you energy then that's okay right um, but if, it, if it's draining you then that's usually when when you have uh, issues you know there are two types of stresses you stress which is good stress and there's distress which is bad stress 
Um, <clears throat> and we want we want to uh, have use stress as uh, more often than than not. Um, but I'm separating. So you can certainly spend a lot of time in the business, um, uh, working on the business, and, and but that's like asking questions like, "Hey, if we were to start this thing today, knowing everything we know and start it over again, what would we do?" And then have a really, you know. Um, um, uh, uh, heavy and hot discussion about how to do that, right? More sort of thought experiments. That's a good thing to do. That's a good thing to spend time on as opposed to having people come to your office door and you know, say, I got a problem and you solve the problem, you know, um, or you're in a meeting all day or, or, you know, doing, doing the operational part of the business, which is important to some degree, but we, we overemphasize that, right? I think we spend, I've asked this question and I, I get the answer. It's like 80% of our time we spend in the business and 20% on the business as leaders. And it should be the opposite. You should be spending much more time on the business, thinking about the future, trying to create it, as opposed to that wonderful good feeling that we get when we solve people's problems, right? That's the issue is when you when you help someone and like, oh my God, that's such an idea. You just, you just, you're a genius, right? That feels really good. You want to do it again, right? So resisting yeah. that and, and pushing off the pleasure of that to the future is hard. Right. Of That's course. one of the most difficult things to do. It's it is. we like the we like the um instant gratification. Sure. And you talk about how leaders have to stop focusing on solving the problem that is in right in front of them and start focusing on solving the problem that is creating the problem that are in front of them. So that's exactly what you mean. Because when I'm in the, the business, I'm not thinking like in high level what should be, what could be, what what would be the future. Um Or, or you mean something else? Uh, no, any of the, yes. So those things are, are, yes, are either solving the problem that's causing the problem or trying to avoid problems, right? I think oh. leaders' best job should be try to avoid things as opposed to try to solve things, right? If yeah. you're, you're not going to avoid everything, but if you're thinking about that, like I love the pre-mortem, right? The pre-mortem is a process where you go through, what if this failed spectacularly? What do we think would be the worst outcome? And then what if it, really succeeded spectacularly would be outcome. And then you can manage from there. We generally don't do the, we always assume it's going to, it's going to succeed spectacularly, which by the way, it we, hardly we ever hope. does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Never. Um, but if you think about those things up front, you're much more likely to avoid them or mitigate them uh, if they do happen. Um, yeah. So that's sort of what I mean. Uh, one of the things that happens a lot with me is say, if you want to grow is people, when when we do priorities and for the month or the quarter or whatever or the year and they're struggling they're almost always they go to sales right oh let's hire a really kick-ass vp of sales or really you know um, awesome sales guy right that's just out there a big whale hunter you know that's going to solve the problem and i say well it might solve the problem in the short term but eventually these people are going to run out of runway or or whatever it is i said so if so that's solving the problem that's right in front of you Now, creating a system for hiring really good salespeople, training them really well, understanding their customer, connecting them with marketing, et cetera, is now solving the problem that's creating the problem that's in front of you here, right? Now, you could also go in front of that, and that gets more to strategy, which is you go to marketing and say, are we actually selling the right thing to the right people in the right way? Which, if we solve that one, then we know who to hire, and we know how, how they can succeed. Uh, and yes, having a really good VP of sales is important, but it's just solving the problem in front of you. Uh, and yeah. in one instance with one of my customers, they did that. 
and they fired the person six months later because it didn't turn out to be what they thought it was. And then they were stuck in the same thing. And, and we did another yeah. round of priorities. And guess what happened when I went around and said, what do we think the number one thing we need to do with the quarter is? Everyone said, we need to hire a really good VP of sales. Yeah. Like, no, haven't we learned? <laughs> no. You know, it, you know. Sales is like a Band-Aid, right? You yeah, could always blame is. sales. They have the hardest part in the, like, first you can always measure if they're good or not, right? You yes. cannot say that about other, like you not as much about other parts of, of the company because yeah, the numbers are. are so clear, right? So I see that you're really, like you really love what you're doing. And, and I want to ask you why effective leadership is so important for you as a person. Yeah, so my purpose, uh, core purpose is called Simplified Servanthood. Um, and the reason I, it took me like a year or so to really come up with that. And uh, what I found is that there are a few things that I found. One is it's a really it's a shame that really good ideas, really good really good businesses, and really good people fail or struggle for completely preventable reasons. So that's one reason. The second is, as adults, we spend the majority of our time either at or thinking about work. And if you believe the statistics, most of us aren't engaged at work. There's like 25% across the world. It's it's terrible. Like a quarter of the people are actually engaged. So that means. 75% of your people aren't engaged, and some fraction of those are actively disengaged, meaning they're sabotaging you. Um, so, and I think that comes to an issue of effective leadership, right? Is that if you have a great leader, you see people like Herb Keller, who started Southwest, you see Alan Mulally, you see Steve Jobs 2.0, you know, in all different ways, these people that are considered really great leaders create this environment that people can thrive in, you know, this is human flourishing. Um, and that's a much better way to live. Right? I just think it's better for everyone. I just think people will be happier. You know, hopefully they'll be more productive. They'll be more satisfied and fulfilled in their lives. That's, that's why I, that's what moved me every day is, you know, why I get excited about it is, you know, I'm tracking that I'm trying to track, I'm trying to, before I stop affect a million lives. I'm at like tens of thousands right now. I got a long way to go. Um, so, so even if I only do 200,000, that's fine. At least I have, you know, that's, that's good. I made an impact on some people, uh, you know, by helping others. So that's, that's what, that's, as you said, that's what, those are the things that get me going in the morning. Yeah. Because you see it as a mission to make the, the leaders and the employees under them uh, enjoy what they're doing even much better than what, like you could start a job and be very enthusiastic. And after like half a year, a year or two, uh, you, you feel like, yeah, I'm here, but it's like a cage of, of gold. I, I'm just used to it. Am I getting paid? And I'm not doing more than that. And you see so many people just staying where they are, not changing anything. And, um, even if they do want to change the, the position, to change the company, to change what whatever, they don't have any real way of doing that in, in these like very complex systems, especially if they're very big ones, right? Yeah. And that's again up to the leader, right? To to make sure that that you hire that you that you share the purpose, right? Uh, I'm, I, there's a joke that was made, which I really love telling over and over again, which is CEO eventually turns from chief, chief executive officer to chief explanation officer. Your job is to continually remind people why we're here, what we're doing, the purpose of the business, the cause that we're trying to go for and, and trying to the impact we're trying to make in the world. And if you do that, you remind them why they're here. And those that say, you know what, I don't want to do that. Fine. You know, that's OK. 
then let's let's help you in a compassionate way to find another place to go do what you want to do. Um, because right. when you find, you know, you, when you hire and and work with people who believe what you believe, they're happier, they're they're more productive. They're generally you generally need fewer of them as well. So you're also uh, able to give them more benefits of of creating more profit and cash in the business. Uh, so it's this wonderful virtuous circle that you can that you can create if you do those kinds of things. Yeah. So if you wanted to the audience to take away one thing from this show today, what piece of advice would you want them to walk away with? Um, so who are your who are your audience members mostly? Can you like what, how do they? Break uh, down? I think most of them are are leaders and and, and things the, people are doing innovation, entrepreneurs. People are really enthusiastic at what yeah. about what they're doing. So, uh, so I'm going to say uh, the most important thing that I would take away is is love. Your job is to figure out how to create an environment of love, and not only of people and, and the people that are around you, but uh, getting them to love what they do. Right, finding uh, creating an environment and and a, a a team where as often as possible, each team member gets to do what they love doing as often as possible. It's never going to be 100% of the time. And there's some data out there that says it only needs to be about 20% of the time for them to be much more engaged in what they do. You know, I, I equate it to maybe that's like vacation, right? It's, it, you can sort of get through a tough go if you know that on the other side, you're going to go enjoy time with your family or in the sun or whatever you want to be doing. Um, uh, I think if you give them a, that opportunity uh, to love at least part of their job, if not all of their job, then uh, then you're in a, putting yourself in a much better position to make your job as a leader actually easier um, because they won't need to be monitored. You won't have to bring them back to the office as much. You give them more choice. Um, you're more helping them to 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 do things that they they think are are important to do, and they're bringing ideas to you as opposed to you having to say. I'm, you know, that's such pressure to come up with all the new ideas and make the business grow. Um, if you get 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, 1,000 people all working of how to make the business better, even in a small way, that's a that's an onslaught, right? That's a tidal wave. Um, so much easier to do that than what we generally do, which is, you know, which uh, which I think we talked about uh, earlier in the pre stuff, which is this effort, luck, force of will, and timing. Most leaders rely on those four things and they generally don't scale. That just makes life harder for everyone. So that's what I would say. One yeah. thing is, is yeah. find as much love and joy and work uh, and create that environment for that as often as possible. Yeah. It sounds really interesting that you mentioned love because I, I feel that sometimes we're so um, oriented to business terms, right? To uh, you know, persistence, something like that, you know, um, And, and sometimes when people are doing something out of love, out of joy, they are so motivated and they enjoy what they're doing. So you don't need to work that much, you know, just to make them do what they want to do and achieve. And, and if the company is growing with them and allowing them to do things that, that could maybe change a bit from one time to the other, from one yeah. stage to the other, it, it makes so much more, more sense. I agree. And that gets yeah. back to what we said earlier, which is the problem solve the problem that's causing the problem, right? I think love is the root, right? Because if you love what you do, guess what? You're more persistent. You're more disciplined. You create better habits, uh, all those things. You have more energy. Uh, you're more creative and innovative. And it's like all of these things follow along. If you can create this environment as a leader of, you know, 
fall, having people fall in love with their job or part of their job. Yeah. So I want to thank you for your time and ask you where could people hear more about you and contact you and hear about your work? Sure. Um, best is my website, which is catalystgrowthadvisors.com. Uh, my book is on there. You can actually get it for free. I'm more about the message than the money. Uh, you can you can also go on Amazon and Audible and download it. Um, and I make like four bucks or something, which is great. Yeah. Um, you can uh, book time with me. I write uh, uh, about twice a month. I write a blog post, which is generally short and, excuse me, and actionable. Uh, mm -hmm. There's almost always something to do in them or hopefully make you think a little bit differently around, uh, really around this theme of team systems and, and cash or most of them. Uh, so that's the best way to catalystgrowthadvisors.com. Oh, thank you for your time. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Bill. So thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me on. And to all of you change makers out there, thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about what I do, go to invincibleinnovation.com and I'll see you next week with another innovative, insightful talk. See ya. I'm Adima Zaukario, and you've been listening to the Invincible Innovation Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, invincibleinnovation.com, where you can learn more about our programs and my book, Innovating Through Chaos. I'll be waiting for you next week in our next episode. Thank you for listening.